Hello and welcome. My name is Robin Marriott of Property EU, and I'm delighted to be hosting this second edition of the Urban Land Institute's Vanguard podcast series. Now, the ULI brings together real estate and land use experts from around the world with a clear mission to shape the built environment and have a transformative impact on neighbourhoods and in cities and communities. And this podcast focuses on that future and that transformative impact. Now, the ULI Young Leaders Group recently selected 10 outstanding young professionals already making waves in the industry, calling them the new real estate vanguard. And I'm delighted to welcome one of them, Christian Fladerland of Heimstart. And Christian, welcome. Thank you very much. Now, Christian, uh, just perhaps, first of all, tell us what your role is at that company. It's a Nordic-based residential property company, I believe. But can you perhaps set the scene for us? I can certainly do that. So I am Chief Investment Officer at uh, Heimstaden, so responsible for the overall investment strategy and not least execution of it. Uh, we also organized in a manner where our asset management team is uh, uh, subject to the CIO, i.e. that we make sure that all the investments that we do in our existing portfolio uh, and CapEx measures is always evaluated on the basis of a new investment and not just as pure maintenance and operation. Yes, exactly. Um, now, Christian, I've, I have to say that on this podcast so far, we've had many sort of varied people with, uh, maybe tackling the industry from the uh, tech perspective, from ESG. But I think that you perhaps are at the cutting edge of equity real estate transactions in Europe, more so perhaps than the others on the show. So perhaps with that in mind, can you tell us a little bit about in any given month, what you'll be doing in this particular position and remembering that it's 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 kind of a pan-european role isn't it so it touches on equity transactions in many different markets that is correct um i'm a bit of a dinosaur compared to only being 36 years old so i'm very old <laughs> old school investor mindset yeah it's correct we are present across 10 markets uh, and we have local teams in each of them um so naturally i am traveling quite a lot in order to meet up with the teams and align on strategy. We have grown materially in recent years. When I started in January 2019, uh, we were essentially a small local investment team only focusing on on Sweden. Uh, Today, we are almost 50 investment professionals, uh, excluding the asset management team, uh, and have a massive deal flow uh, across our markets. Given that we are present across in that many markets, it's also very important for us to set standards for how do we evaluate transactions, not only within markets, but also relatively across markets and form a strategy uh, around this. This requires a lot of pan-country alignment. Um, Local investment teams obviously are experts within their uh, own markets, but they also need to understand what our alternative is as a group in all of our competing markets, which you would see from a local perspective. So uh, a lot of traveling, uh, a lot of discussions with the local teams, follow-ups, understanding market dynamics, opportunities, uh, and also make sure that there is a good cross-border collaboration and understanding. Yeah, so you're obviously clocking up loads of air miles or train miles as you as you, <laughs> as you go around. I'm, I'm sure that you're pleased that, you know, what with COVID seemingly behind us, of course, you are able to travel. So that's... That's beautiful because given just how social real estate is, it, it does seem to be about personal connections. Just tell us how, I've always wondered with the CIO position, 
of what is now actually a, a, a big organization, if you've explained it. How does, how does the CIO judge if he's doing a good job? And what, what do you think are the characteristics needed to be a success in this kind of role in the European real estate sector? I'd say first of all, I would let other judge whether I'm doing a good job, but I can at least describe what characteristics I believe is a prerequisite uh, to, to doing it. Um, first of all, I think it's very important to be focused on a strategy and execute according to it and not be too uh, stressed about uh, volatility in the market. Uh, and we'll get back to that. But this year has been quite extraordinary. We have a very uh, long term and fundamental view on each of the countries that we're present and we are navigating accordingly. We're working in an illiquid asset class of real estate where you really need to have a proper, uh, a proper view on the underlying fundamentals and not deviate, uh, deviate from that. You should still be agile enough to adapt the strategy to fundamental or structural changes. But I believe that the way to succeed in the long run is to be very true to your strategy and have a good and analytical understanding of the underlying supply demand dynamics, uh, country-specific risk, FX risk uh, uh, as well, given that uh, a com company like ours is present across so many markets. So analytical approach, uh, be true to your strategy and then, uh, and then execute good on, on your business plan. Yes. Now, Christian, we, on this podcast series, we, we like to help people, um, especially if they're thinking about entering into real estate as a career. And there are, as we've said, so many different roles. Now, you're Danish, as I understand it, but working for a Swedish property company. So do you think you could talk to us uh, a little bit about uh, how it all started for you, how you came to be in real estate, perhaps what taking it further back, what you studied at university, was there anything in your background that suggested you would be working in the built environment and so forth? Uh, the truth it is complete coincidence that I got into real estate. Um, I was studying economist uh, as an economist at the University of Copenhagen. My mother was an accountant for two of the larger listed real estate companies uh, uh, pre the financial crisis in Denmark. And she was at a dinner at, uh, at Mipem in Cannes in 2007. And hmm. there she met a partner at a property consultant, Sadolina uh, Nelbeck. Uh, it was a Jones Lang LaSalle affiliate in, in Denmark at those days. And he was an economist. Uh, and he had built up a research team as one of the first uh, research team among uh, property consultants in Denmark. Uh, and, um, and she said, wouldn't it be an idea that you have an interview with my, my son? He is studying and he needs uh, an internship. Uh, and that was exact, That was actually how it started. Uh, it was a bit funny because I was actually turned down when I was to start there. They believed I was too young. I was only 20 years at the time. Uh, and even though I had gone directly through high school to the university uh, and was actually decent in the seniority, they felt I was too young as, uh, as a profile. But six months later, given that this was at the height of the business cycle before the financial crisis, uh, they were so desperate for labor that uh, they offered me a job as an intern. <laughs> uh, and uh, my ambition was essentially to stay there during my studying uh, and then go to London and become an investment banker. <laughs> but it turned out that, uh, first of all, I fell quite much in love with real estate. And then it turned out that I completed my master's in 2009. And there was not that many going to, to London at that time, at least from Copenhagen for investment banking. So I took a full-time position, uh, first as an analyst in our research and valuation department, moved on quite quickly to capital markets, uh, as we saw a lot of distressed banks uh, following the financial crisis in Denmark. 
and there was a clear shift in the competences that was required by uh, by property consultants. Previously, it had been a very much brokerage uh, business with very much focus on on the bricks, uh, but we definitely saw a change in uh, in the demand for competences where the more corporate finance analytical approaches really gained momentum, and that was essentially the roadmap for me kickstarting the career at a quite early age and getting a lot of responsibility. I became a partner there in 2014 uh, and uh, and then I met Heimstarten in 2015. They entered Denmark uh, with their first acquisition in 2014, which I was not involved with, but I had built up a quite uh, strong position within uh, residential investments um, in the brokerage uh, business. And I started to do quite a lot of sourcing to Heimstarten and started to do more and more buy side. And at some time, you spend so much time with uh, with your client that it's uh, it's more obvious to change side. Hmm. And that was my way into Heimstad. Uh, so that that's what happened. And yes, all of this was taking place, as you said yourself, uh, at, at a very uh, a relatively young age. And then, as the years ticked by at Heimstad, and still very young, but really getting involved in some, I have to say, gigantic deals. I myself have reported on a couple of them. One that took place. Last year, I think, was one of the largest private real estate deals ever done. Just tell us about some of these transactions, maybe, that stick out for you um, in terms of your career, but also in terms of the, the progress of the company and how they came about and what is needed to execute such large and sometimes complex transactions. I actually would... Uh change focus back to 2019 when I started. So you're completely correct. We made a very large transaction uh, last year, the 9.1 billion euro transaction from uh, Achilles. But when I started, I needed to transform from the advisor side to being now uh, a principal investor. Um, I was doing our first larger transaction in the Netherlands. Uh, it was uh, almost 10,000 units and 1.4 billion euro uh, and that was essentially signed three and a half months after i started in 2019. Hmm. so both the evaluation of the transaction uh, underwriting and the due diligence was carried out within the first three and a half months of uh, my employmentship with heimstad where the team was nearly non-existent and i would say that is probably the transaction that developed me uh, the most where i needed to change complete mindset from being an advisor to now actually making the decisions uh, before, when I was an advisor, I thought it was so easy to make the right decision, uh, just advising on what to do. But when you were actually standing in it, it turns out it takes a complete different confidence uh, to actually make decisions when you're actually uh, when you're actually the one making them. So that was a transaction that I felt was very uh, much learning for how I were to uh, to manage transactions in Heimstaden uh, going forward. And since then, we've been doing several large transactions. Uh, Residomo in Czech Republic in February 2020 uh, of uh, 1.3 billion euro. Um, and uh, in, uh, in Denmark, we also did uh, 1.5 billion euro, I believe it was, in, uh, in December 21. Sorry, December 2020. Uh, now I'm mixing up the years. And then we had the very large transaction of Achilles uh, last year of 9.1 billion euro. I would not say that there is any of these last transactions that stand out to me other than the first one, uh, which was uh, a, a very fascinating and hectic start to my career at Heimstaden. We believe that transactions need to be funded in uh, in the same, whether it's a single asset of 3 million euro or whether it's a 9 billion euro uh, platform acquisition. Uh, it's, 
it's just an, it's important for us to make very accretive small add-on transaction have processes for that while the very large blockbuster transaction is something that uh, that we do when we believe they make strategically sense to us yes well blockbuster blockbuster exactly i mean it's just an incredible one last year as well but thanks for telling us about the the transition from the advisory to the principal side and that formative deal in 2019 yeah that 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 said it all um just a little bit about perhaps uh, personality wise you said and you're not the first to say this on the podcast series that you weren't necessarily thinking about going into real estate at all you mentioned you wanted to be an investment banker but clearly you know, you were interested in investment. And then you said that somehow you, you, you fell in love with real estate. And this is something I hear so often, Christian. What is it about real estate, would you say, that just really piqued your interest? It's actually very difficult to put words on it. Hmm. Um, I think the fact that you have such a tangible asset, uh, I really like uh, it's the aesthetics about real estate. I love beautiful real estate, yeah. but also like that it impacts so many people's uh, life. And that's essentially also why when I say that I like real estate, it actually is much more narrowed down to, to residential. Uh, I don't have a super big passion for sheds or outdated office buildings, etc. even though they might be mm -hmm. decent investments. Uh, it, it is residential and having uh, such a significant impact on, on people's life. And that, that is where I actually believe that Heimstaden is, is a true differentiator. And what really appealed to me is that you have the dynamic, the high competent, uh, high paced environment of a typical private equity firm, uh, consultancy investment bank, while you still have a very value driven view on operations and customers. Uh, we really want to make a different product offering than just uh, having a commodity of a tenant but actually see how can we improve the life quality and the offering to our extent, uh, to our customers and thereby add value through that. And I believe that residential is there where you have the most potential to make that impact, but also where you have the potential to combine it with, uh, with uh, outstanding commercial performance. Exactly. It's the impact, isn't it? The impact that real estate has, bringing it down to a very practical level. It's where we live. It's where we work. It's where we play. Um, exactly. Um, just on the subject then of having an impact what about sustainability christian uh this esg components of doing these deals has become so important and i think it's important to heimstarten as well uh in the danish markets for example but also across the other markets that you are active in and i'm just wondering can you can you talk to us about the esg side of uh, being a CIO and also as a, as in a real estate company and is it a competitive advantage would you say uh or, or, or more of a sort of a roadblock to, to investing? No. We have definitely embraced the uh, sustainability uh, very uh, full-heartedly at Heimstaden. Uh, and we are not only focusing on the E in ESG, but also the S. So if we split it into two, on the, on the environmental side, uh, we have a bit different view than a lot of the, uh, sort of say, classical thinking of, uh, of environmental-friendly uh, real estate. Um, we actually believe that the most environmental friendly building you can build is the one that you don't build, i.e. that you actually use the existing resources mm. and try to upgrade them uh, as efficiently as possible. Um, there is a lot of embedded carbon emission when you are to make new builds, nearly no matter how efficient you do it. Uh, there is a lot of ways that you are testing now how you can reuse things and do it more efficiently in relation to the construction process. But I think we need to find a way how can we actually manage the massive existing stock that we have 
and uh, and try to upgrade that in a manner where it maybe doesn't get uh, to an A energy label, but get to a B or a C, and thereby moving a a significant um, step on a relative basis from where it's coming. So we are investing heavily in our existing portfolio. We have a lot of centrally located assets that are built in the early 19th century, and uh, that is in Copenhagen, Berlin, uh, etc. And there we are doing a lot of work on seeing on how can we actually optimize that uh, within uh, the building codes, upgrading the facades, uh, new heating systems, new windows, uh, insulated roofing, etc. In relation to new builds, it's also something that we are doing a lot of. And it, of course, reflects that we are typically in markets where there is a supply-demand imbalance or more properly told a housing shortage. And there we are definitely very focused on making sure that our building standards is future-proof and uh, and is fulfilling our, our, our Paris Agreement commitment by 2030. So I think on the environmental side, we are investing a lot of resources and money in making sure that uh, we contribute to the environment, but also that we have a future-proofed uh, portfolio uh, that is, of course, also very important for our uh, uh, long-term returns. The S is something that we are just as focused on as we is on, uh, on the E. Um, we are very humble about the fact that there is significant housing shortages across the markets that we are present. Um, so we are very focused about the affordability of our portfolio. Um, we are a long-term investor, uh, and that also means that we don't have the disaligned incentives as we see some of the more close-ended fund, uh, funds has, where they need to drive a significant NOI growth uh, within a few years. Residential trust is not an asset class that you can uh, speculate in. Uh, we believe that that has too many social consequences. Uh, I don't want to go through each uh, country where we have examples of that, but we really want to make sure that we by ourselves self-regulate how we actually operate and how we navigate towards our tenants in order to make a business plan that is socially viable. That might very well cost of 20, 50, or even 80 basis points on our IRR, uh, over time, but we believe that that's the way that you can actually make a long-term socially viable business, which will still, from a risk-adjusted perspective, offer a very competitive return. Yes, and thanks for mentioning that, because at the end of the day, it, it is still an investment firm, and you know these assets have to perform, so you just explained your approach to that absolutely perfectly. Now, speaking of which, Christian, what a year for in terms of investment and how it's changed just on just in the last 12 months. You alluded to this at the beginning of the conversation. Can you explain to our listeners uh, the, the market as you see it today? What are the changes? What are the challenges? And also, are there any opportunities in particular that's, uh, that are arising for you? It has certainly been a fascinating year. Uh, when I refer to it internally, I say we have been going through a decade of business cycles and geopolitical risk <laughs> within just 11 months. Yes. Um, there is no doubt that when you have such a steep increase in inflation and you have such a harsh uh, policy stance from the central banks in order to address this, uh, and I think it's fair to say everybody agrees that the central banks looking back what has been behind the curve and they need to do it even more forcefully in order to make sure we get inflation under control, that has significant consequences on the financial markets. And that, of course, also spills over to uh, at least the funding side of real estate and where should yields actually uh, stabilize and, and what are you willing to underwrite in such an environment. 
But if we just take the operational side first before we take into come into all the uncertainty on valuations and where we're going from here, it's interesting to see that residential operations across all our markets is historically strong. We see historically high occupancy rates. We see very strong rental growth, uh, and uh, and we don't really see any uh, major increase in bad debts or people who can't pay pay their rent. So, so far, we believe that operations is holding up uh, very well. The big uh, challenge, of course, comes from two, uh, two aspects. Um, we see a significant reduction in new construction following significant construction inflation post-COVID. Uh, and now you combine it with an increased uh, uncertainty in the financial markets, increased yield requirements and uh, increased interest rates. And that is only putting a, a, a even more harder stop to uh, construction than we saw uh, before this arising. So I'm unfortunately fearing that we will see an increased supply demand imbalance, an increased housing shortage, and thereby also more stressed uh, affordability going forward in the in the housing sector. So unfortunately, it's on a sad background, but I think that residential from operational perspective will only uh, perform better and better in the coming years. The big question is, of course, then what will happen on, uh, on valuations um, the increase in interest rates is, of course, creating uncertainty on where should you underwrite a stabilized yield today. Can you be certain that you will be able to uh, get CPI uplifts on your rents if uh, the affordability is, is stressed and, and cost of living crisis continues? Uh, or should you start to require premiums there? We are most certainly uh, underwriting that yields are to expand from here but we don't necessarily believe it will be a massive hit on residential values. There will surely be pressure, but we believe that the lack of uh, supply and the reduced construction activity will support value as well, and it will mainly fed over to, to rental growth. And there the big balance from us comes in. How can we balance this with uh, maintaining an affordable product and, uh, and doing it in a socially viable manner? Exactly, Christian. Thanks for painting that picture. And you made me think of something as well. Uh, this podcast series is uh, often focused on, you know, people that are just beginning to make their way in real estate. Um, what about people that are thinking about entering this industry, given the challenges that you've just outlined for us? Um, you know, is it a good time? Uh, how should people approach it? And I'm thinking, for example, you mentioned that uh, the investments that are happening post GFC, this was probably something that you learned a lot from in the on the advisory side. So I can see it being a two way thing whilst it's a difficult time. Maybe it's difficult times where you can really cut your teeth um, in the early stages, which could benefit you later in, in your career. But I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm just asking you, essentially, what advice do you could offer people that are perhaps contemplating entering on the investment or operational side of real estate? I definitely wouldn't advise people to deciding on entering a sector based on whether you're in a crisis or not. But uh, but I do uh, do fully agree that when I, when I started as an intern just before the, the great financial crisis, I was, of course, very junior at that point in time, but actually building a career on the back of that really made you understand uh, uh, the challenges that will arise when you have such a distorted financial market and when liquidity dries up. So I definitely believe that it's in these periods of uncertainty and major market moves that you really uh, learn uh, how to navigate uh, and you really grow, grow as a person. So in that respect, I don't believe it's a bad timing to enter the in mm -hmm. industry. 
but it should definitely be funded on on a on a true interest for for the asset class. Uh, real estate was, as mentioned, when I was looking for for doing a career, I thought investment banking was the most sexiest as a hmm. young professional that you could do. Hmm. Uh, real estate has a bit unjustified, I wouldn't say bad reputation, but at least a boring asset class. Mm. I think that has uh, steadily but slowly changed in the past five to seven years. We see that uh, the candidates and uh, and the talent that we're able to attract in the in the industry is uh, significantly better quality than than when I was recruited. So you can say I was probably also a bit lucky. I was entering at a at a at a phase in. Uh, in the industry where it was easier to make a career because competition was not a large. But today you really have a lot of talented people who want to work with real estate and really value the impact that you can make on, on people's life. So I think the timing is, uh, is definitely good today, even though uh, the uncertainty has increased, uh, but it should definitely be driven by a passion for real estate. Yes. Um, talking about passion, uh, we would love to know on this podcast series what inspires people that are on the on the show, as it were. Are there any podcasts or books that you read that you can uh, recommend to people? Uh, we would love to know. Perhaps in your job you don't have much time for this, but <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, what, what what kind of things do you um, take inspiration from? Yeah. Now I can again refer to me being a dinosaur. It's not mm. because I don't hear podcasts at all, but mm. I definitely prefer to read books compared mm. to podcasts. <laughs> uh, and I don't have that much time on, uh, to do it. But what I like to read is uh, is very much based on uh, on uh, biographies uh, about, uh, you can say, eccentric and high-performing individuals. Um, that could be Elon Musk, uh, Steve Jobs, um, also some leadership principles, for example, by... Ray Dalio, uh, his principles book. Uh, that is something that I take. Uh, I really, really like uh, reading about. In general, I'm fascinating about people who don't put boundaries on their ambitions. Uh, so they really set very high standards for what they want to achieve and work very hard to do it. And uh, that's also very much aligned with the philosophy that we have at, at Heimstaden. We always want to challenge existings uh, and we want to set goals that seem completely outrageous uh, to others, but we believe that that's the only way that you can actually make a, a true difference. So that's also very much aligned with what I actually uh, like reading about. Uh, when it needs to be a bit more on the uh, on the fictional side of things, it's not really fictional, but I like to read about uh, old uh, good business stories like Barbarians at the Gate uh, of the uh, of the fall of Adia uh, Nabisco, uh, also the the long-term rise and fall of long-term capital management. Um, all these uh, stories is also, even though not truly fictional, it's still something that I, uh, I, I like reading. Yeah. Christian, thank you so much for sharing all these thoughts. Really, really appreciate your time today. Thank you. 